changes. What's the Word? Brought to you by Columbia Baptist Church in Columbia, Kentucky on 101.9 WAIN. I am Randy Johnson, the senior pastor at Columbia Baptist Church, and thank you for joining us every Wednesday night at 6 o'clock right here on 101.9 WAIN. Good evening once again, and welcome to What's the Word? This is Randy Johnson. And, you know, I realized something this evening that probably never really dawned on me before, and that is, you know, I recorded that intro to the show a couple of years ago, and I would imagine that over the last year or two, maybe my voice has changed some, and I may sound a little different in the intro than I do on the actual radio show. So if that's the case, I apologize. But it's still me, and I'm still glad to be able to host the show, share my thoughts and ideas with you, but more importantly, point you to Jesus. Because the whole goal of this show is to share events that happen in and around the world, but point them through or interpret them through the lens of Scripture. You know, if we can't see the world through the way God sees the world, then what we're going to do is we're going to live our life in frustration because we all have disappointments, we all have issues, we all have challenges that we face. But the Bible gives us wonderful perspective on life, how we see bad things, good things, and all things knowing that God is in control. So I have several things that I'm very eager to get to this evening to share with you. And, and, you know, stories, events, happenings from around the world that I know are on everybody's radar. You know, what I'm going to share this evening and talk about, I know is not going to be brand new information. But what I do hope is that by discussing these things and bringing them to light, that I can add a different perspective. You know, I've, I say this all the time in the pulpit, and in fact, I just said this, what I'm going to tell you, I just said this this past Sunday. And that is, you know, salvation and our relationship with God is really a matter of the heart. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of decision. It's a matter of commitment. And, and the Bible kind of describes the heart as kind of that central place in a person's life where they dedicate themselves, where they commit themselves, not so much the head, but certainly in the heart. But the Bible also describes when we have times of frustration, temptation, doubt, whatever, it's just a natural part of the Christian life. And so what I say a lot of times is, Satan who messes with you or temptation that hits cannot have your heart, but he certainly can mess with your head. And I think that's where a lot of doubts, where a lot of fear, all the anxiety, it affects the heart. But my goodness, does it, it just run laps around our head and in our brain and anxiety begins there. It works its way through all of our life. It will make the heart flutter and have all kinds of problems and issues. But at the end of the day, doubt, fear, and all of that stuff happens in the head. So what I'm saying is what I like to do on this show is give you not only what will transform your heart in the power of the good news of Jesus, but I also like to share what can transform your mind and give you the right perspective so that when you look at the, the world, the events, the all sorts of foolishness that goes on in the world, that you can look at those things through the lens of Scripture and be able to get the right perspective to say, this is how God sees this. I know that God is in control. I know that God is going to work all of these things out, whether I ever see it or not. And you know, it, it's, and this is not one of my topics for tonight, 
But a lot of people were watching the trial that happened last week about Kyle Rittenhouse and the shooting that happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And, you know, I mean, it goes without saying any high profile case, any high profile issue, especially over the last couple of years with race riots and the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, with, pro, uh, you know, protesting and, you know, what happened in Washington in January and the election and COVID and just people getting up in arms about all sorts of stuff. Anytime there is a kind of pinnacle moment like this trial was that centered around that protest and riot that happened there, people are going to be curious. They're going to want to know what's the outcome of this. And some people felt as though justice won out. Some people felt as though justice didn't win out. Some people have a lot of confidence in the system. Some people look at it and say, the system is broken. Not really going to discuss anything about that that trial or that event in tonight's show because I have other things that I want to talk about. But at the end of the day, we live in an imperfect world. We have imperfect systems all around us. I'm going to talk about such a case tonight. But what we have to do as Christians is we have to trust that even when we don't see what we think justice ought to be, one way or the other, that ultimately God is going to win. Ultimately, God's justice is going to win out. And that's just a fact and a reality and a truth that we need to be very firm with. And so I just wanted to share that kind of, you know, as we begin uh, this evening and certainly want to thank you for joining me tonight and thank the good folks at 101.9 WAIN for allowing me to have this time slot on their radio station. Obviously, their, uh, their mother uh, radio channels, radio stations, 93.5, and also 1270 AM. They manage all of those, and I'm just thankful to be a small part of one of those uh, broadcasts. But right here on 101.9 WAIN, where we are this evening, you can find me every Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to share my thoughts with you, and I appreciate you joining in. Well, let's get to the very first story that I want to mention this evening, the very first topic that really has a lot of people troubled because it's not anything new. As far as I know, it doesn't have anything to do with riots or protesting. As far as I know, it doesn't have anything to do with any domestic violence or anything like that. More and more investigation is coming. More and more news is coming to light every single day. So maybe even by the time I'm saying these words, there's new information that I just don't know. And I'm okay with that because I'm not necessarily an up-to-the-minute news source for all things that I speak on. I just have a perspective on topics, and I will give you what I know at the moment. But over the weekend, particularly on Sunday, there was a driver of an SUV in a suburban area of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who decided to drive at a very high rate of speed through a part of the Christmas parade. And if you've seen any of the video of this, the, the man is driving very fast through many portions of the parade where there are floats and, and different you know, elements of the parade going by. But he comes up upon an area where people, a lot of people are walking in the middle of the street down this parade, and he just zooms up behind them, and for lack of a better word, because it's really the only word that you can use, he plowed through this group of people. 
And so far, he has killed at least five, now they're saying six people, injuring around 50. And this guy apparently didn't know anyone in the parade. But what has become alarming about this story is the guy was out on bail of only $1,000 for running down a female and their child in his car. And for that offense, he was out on bond of just $1,000. I don't know a lot of the background of that part of the story, and I don't know a lot about this guy in this story. I'm just going to be upfront and honest and say that my information of the driver is really not a key to this the reason why I'm bringing this up. But the man, he acted alone. His name was Daryl Brooks Jr. Uh, again, immediate you know, investigation says that apparently he didn't know anybody in the parade. And he was acting alone. There wasn't any kind of a conspiracy or anybody in the car with him. But he had just left the site of a domestic disturbance just before the officers arrived you know he took off and he was being chased by the police and that's what led him into this Christmas parade and instead of pulling over and graciously being arrested and getting himself off of the road this man decided that he would instead drive through a parade through town and injure and or kill well over 50 people. You know, like I said, the injuries was over 50, the, the deaths were around six. But you're talking about a parade going through a, a suburban town on a Sunday for Christmas, you know, kind of kicking off a, you know, pre-Thanksgiving Christmas celebration, you know, before it gets miserably cold in Wisconsin, people don't want to march outside or be in a parade. 72,000 people in this community. And my goodness, this guy decides to drive through the middle of a parade. And what is, you know, is additionally sad that the, the, the people who died were all over the age of 52, even an 81-year-old man. And the, the video of it is just terrifying. But the reality of this particular guy driving through this Christmas parade kind of hit me because this guy has been charged with 16 crimes since 1999. So over the last 22 years, he has been convicted of 16 different crimes and has two outstanding cases against him at the time of this disaster, the time of him driving through this parade. And again, one of which, as I said, he was out on bond of deliberately running down a woman with his vehicle. When you think about an event like this, my thought immediately goes to the motivation. And was this man motivated by anger with someone in the parade? It really doesn't seem as though that's the case. So his motive was not revenge. His motive was not necessarily trying to get at a certain person. That, that, that was not the motivation. So what is the motivation for a guy like this to drive through a parade and essentially plow over 50-some people and scare thousands? The answer is shockingly simple, and it is self-preservation. Because this guy was trying to get away from the police, he chose to continue down a path that was very busy, floats, lots of onlookers, 
lots of people in the street in the parade. It is almost as if this man didn't see any of that. And all he saw was the, the steering wheel of his car and looking straight ahead down the road, trying to preserve himself from having to go to jail. But think of the absolute lunacy of doing something like that because by doing what he did on Sunday, not only is he going to go to jail and be caught and apprehended for the crime he was trying to get away from, but now he has added so many additional charges of vehicular homicide, endangering people, reckless driving, and all of that could have been avoided if the man had either stayed put or just pulled his car to the side and given him himself up. All of those deaths, all of those injuries, all of those other crimes never would have existed had the man just stopped. So what does the Bible have to say about something like this? You know, so many times... God sends us warning signs of different things. And I don't necessarily mean about, you know, crimes against humanity or, or murder or anything like that. But my mind immediately goes to something like the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Up, till, up until the moment that Jesus was teaching the disciples and teaching these thousands that were listening to him on the side of the mountain. Up until that moment, they had heard the law said, do not do this, do not do that. And they were very familiar with that. I mean, children from, you know, early, early childhood were memorizing the law and memorizing the Old Testament. They were, they were well versed with what the Bible said they should and should not do. But when Jesus began to teach in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard that it was said, but I say, and what was he doing? Jesus was not reinterpreting the law. Jesus was fulfilling the law by giving it a much broader view than they ever had before. For example, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit murder. Okay, that's a law. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. So if we're not to commit murder, then that means that we're not to take somebody's life. But here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit murder. But then he said, but I say... That if you have anger in your heart toward another, you're already guilty of that sin. He said, now wait a minute. I, I may be angry with someone and I'm, I may have burning hatred in my heart toward them, but I haven't killed anybody. But what Jesus is saying is that the motivation, the sense of responsibility of handling how you think and how you feel and dealing with that kind of anger is just as bad as actually taking the life of a person. In other words, wanting to and committing the act is essentially one and the same. Having the desire to act on that anger and being so angry that you just hate someone, Jesus says, is identical to taking their life. And I think about that when I see someone like this plowing into a, 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 you know, a street full of people. It is nothing more than self-preservation it is nothing more than having a mindset of saying this. Having a mindset of saying, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm doing what seems right to me. 
I'm doing what is best and most beneficial for me at the expense of other people. And what Jesus is essentially teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount is that our motivations are just as damning to our soul. They are just as, they, they cause just as much responsibility to fall on us as if we were to actually commit the sin. And at the end of the day, the moment that this man got behind the wheel and began driving toward the parade, he already had it in his mind that he was going to drive through the parade whether people were in front of him or not. His motivation was self-preservation at the expense of anything and anyone. This is why there is a charge for reckless endangerment, for not only vehicular homicide, but also driving recklessly and putting people in harm's way because the law on the American books even recognizes that there has to be a penalty not just for the action but also for the motivation. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus equaled the action with the motivation and said they are one and the same. If you say that you've committed murder, here is the penalty. If you say that you have hatred in your heart towards someone else, then the penalty that is marked for murder is the same penalty that is marked for hatred. And it's all about motivation. And so, you know, my statement, I guess, for all of us is, what is our motivation in life? What is our motivation for why we do what we do? We might look at, at, at others or even say to God, well, look, I did, I, I'm not as bad as that guy. I mean, I may feel this way, but I didn't do that. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus essentially says, look, the feeling, the motivation, the, the emotion that you're feeling about all of this stuff, it's the same as the action. And so when you're comparing yourself to other people, one person may have the action and you may have the motivation. And Jesus said, no, you're both guilty of the same thing. So what we need to do then is we need to check our motivation in everything and ask ourselves, do I have the right motivation in my life See, and I'll give you a spiritual example of this. I'll give you a good example. What we're talking about here is a negative example. I'll give you a positive example. I have lots of people in lots of churches that serve. They will serve food at a dinner. They'll move tables and chairs around. They'll clean up. They will hand out bulletins on Sunday, they'll work in the nursery, they'll teach Sunday school, they will, you know, bake a pie for something. I mean, they'll do all kinds of things. But the question is, why? Why do they do those things? Now, this is certainly not true of every person. But on the surface, you could say, well, look at all that wonderful service this person is doing. And that's great. It's great to be able to serve other people. But what God is most interested in is the why. Why do you serve other people? Why did you make that pie? Why do you serve in the nursery? Why are you teaching Sunday school? Why are you moving the chairs and the tables for some event? Why are you doing the things that you do in and for the church? Why do you do that? And quite honestly, sometimes the answer is, because I'm supposed to, or because somebody's going to think I'm lazy if I don't, or because it's what's expected of me, or God's going to be mad if I don't. 
But the answer ought to be with our motivation. The answer ought to be, I'm doing this because I love Jesus. And Jesus died for the church, and he laid his life down as a servant for the church. Therefore, I want to express my love for Jesus by doing the same. That's the right answer. But we'll be honest, that's not always our answer. It's the right answer, but it's not always our answer. Why do I do what I do for my family? Why do I you know, clean the dishes? Why do I take out the trash? Why do I you know, wash clothes? Why do I give my children medicine when they're sick? Why do I do all of these things for the benefit of my family? Because it's my responsibility, because I have to, because nobody else will do it. Is that really the right motivation? Or could it possibly be that I do all of these things to show my family the character and the nature of Christ? That I can use those opportunities to demonstrate Christ's likeness so that they see that my motivation in doing things in and for my family is to show them the love and the character and the nature of Jesus. That would be the right answer. It's not always our answer, but it most certainly is the right answer. You know, I have... um, Seen a lot of things, read a lot of things, heard a lot of things. And social media has become one of the more interesting devices in our culture that helps to dispense information. You know, it, it began innocently enough as an opportunity to share pictures, updates, life lessons, all sorts of little sayings, happenings, updates about all sorts of family business. And recently, I'd say within the last five years, and by the way, social media is still in its infancy. I mean, until Jesus comes again, this is an animal that's only going to continue to grow. But social media, over the last, I'd say, five years, it may be longer than that, but over the last five years, I've noticed quite a shift in social media as a platform to share political ideas, strong opinions, uh, divisive speech, you know, platforms that we stand on and, and just will raise a banner for. And I noticed that within the last year and a half, two years, thanks to, in in some part, thanks to the amount of Twitter activity that uh, President Trump had when he was in office, that there became a, both on social media as well as just in culture itself, the idea of canceling, the idea of shutting down. And this idea of canceling has gained a lot of steam in a lot of different areas, but in particular social media, because those that control the social media strings have not allowed free speech to be free. They have canceled different posts. They have suspended different users and different accounts for posting different types of things that go against their mm, policies, but sometimes just their preferences. And these preferences and policies are not necessarily something that everybody who uses the social media platform agrees with. Because we all go back to, you know, First Amendment, we go back to, you know, free speech, we go back to freedom of religion, we go back to all sorts of rights and liberties that we have as Americans, and we say, look, we live in a free country, I can say what I want to say. But then those that 
control the strings of those social media platforms say, "Mm, you can say what you want to say, but you're not saying it here. So then instead of really getting a full array of all of the different streams of thought and all of the different viewpoints on issues, now you get kind of a a slice of it. You, You get a section of it of some of what people think as long as it kind of fits within what the owners of the social media world say you can say. I recently read a story about this very issue. Now, I did say earlier that I'm not getting into the whole Kyle Rittenhouse thing Because unlike some of you, I didn't follow every detail of the story. I know enough to kind of describe what happened, and I know enough about the trial to have an intelligent conversation, but because I had other things I wanted to talk about this evening, I really don't want to get too deep into that. However, the story that I read, this is the title of the article. It says, Facebook declares Kyle Rittenhouse's actions, quote, mass murder, end quote, and won't allow posts in support. So you have a 17-year-old who goes on trial for killing two people and wounding another in Kenosha, Washington, and Facebook Again, those that control the strings of the social media platform called Facebook have defined and described his actions as a mass murder. Just as you would think of any other mass murderer. Someone who kills multiple people at the same time. Facebook has deemed his actions as mass murder and they will not allow anybody to post about or in favor of Kyle Rittenhouse's actions. Facebook has deleted accounts. They have removed videos. They have, um, censored certain posts altogether. And listen, on one hand of free speech, let me talk out of one side of my mouth about Facebook. Facebook is a company that is owned by someone or a group of someones. Because of that, Facebook in and of itself has the right to not give or allow any person all the rights in the world to say whatever they want to say. It's their platform. It's free. They are funded by ads and all this stuff that they, you know, all these ties to other companies that they have and games that you play and just all sorts of strings go back to the big dogs at the top that are making lots of money through Facebook. They have the right with free speech. It's their platform. So because it's their game, you have to play by their rules. However, the idea of cancel culture then is someone else determines for the majority what the rules are. And because many people are playing the game, now it's not necessarily a Facebook app or a Facebook website saying, you can't say that here. But the bigger message then becomes, you shouldn't say that anywhere. Not only is it unacceptable here on this app, this website, But we're going to cancel that as a symbolic way of saying, you shouldn't say that anywhere. You shouldn't feel that way about this ever. In other words, using this Kyle Rittenhouse as an analogy, 
Facebook is essentially saying you should agree with us that Kyle Rittenhouse is a mass murderer and you should not support his actions. They have then, in a sense, become the judge and jury. They have decided what his actions meant, what his motivation was, and regardless of what a jury says, regardless of what a judge says, regardless of what the evidence is, Facebook has made their own determination of what you should think, how you should feel, what you should and should not say. Now, again, I just said Facebook, because they're a company, they have the right to do that. But in them exercising their right because of who they are, are sending an even bigger message to the rest of the world to say, we as Facebook, or Meta now as they are officially this bigger company, we at Meta and all of our entanglements and all these other areas and all these other companies are sending this message that Kyle Rittenhouse, regardless of what you see on the media, regardless of what you hear in the trial, and regardless of what the jury says, we are telling you that he is a mass murderer. But here is the real danger. The real danger is that we are not letting the system work. We're not letting the information play out. We are telling you an interpretation of the information. We're telling you a viewpoint of this information, and we are guiding you one way or another toward what you ought to think and feel. Therefore, because we live in a digital age, and because we live in a digital society and everybody flocks to social media, the outlet for what we deem as free speech now has been shut down. It's been canceled. I can't say how I really feel on Facebook because they're going to shut me down. And my pushback to the person who says that would be simply to say, then you don't need to be on Facebook. Because that's not free speech anyway. And if you have to play by certain rules to express your thoughts and your opinions on certain things and you're getting suppressed on Facebook, then just get off of Facebook. But we all unfortunately have this grandosity, grandiosity kind of uh, mentality that I'm going to put my opinion out there and I want everybody to know it. I'm going to say what I think is right and I want everybody to agree with me. That's a dream. That is nothing more than a pie-in-the-sky dream. If you believe a certain thing, you feel a certain way, you have every right to feel that way. You have every right to think that way. And again, if you want to say it out loud, say it to somebody, say it to people walking down the street, free speech, go for it. As long as it's not you know, deemed offensive in terms of vulgarity. But... You know, you see people all the time with bumper stickers and statements and T-shirts and, you know, all sorts of signs and stuff. And you know what? That's free speech. Facebook's not going to come by and take a bumper sticker off your car. They're not, you know, Facebook's not going to come to your house and remove a flag or, a, uh, you know, some kind of a yard sign out of your yard. They can take you off of Facebook because that's their property, so to speak, but they're not going to mess with you or they're not going to come and take a t-shirt off of you because it says something that Facebook deems to be offensive. But if you want to make a statement and you want to say something, free speech is not equal to social media. And social media doesn't have to play by those games. Now, what in the world does this have to do with anything as a believer and as a Christian? It has to do with what's called cancel culture. 
And here's my fear. My fear is that with things like Facebook and with things like cancel culture, that if Facebook can then pick and choose what they deem to be offensive and not offensive, views that they support, views that they don't support, there are a lot of people that are participating in social media platforms who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and are not ashamed to talk about that on social media platforms. But if cancel culture will allow Facebook the right to shut down people in support of Kyle Rittenhouse, then how much longer will it be that Facebook will allow people to post about their support of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And I say all of that to say this. Our primary platform as Christians is not social media. Our primary platform is not digital. The primary platform and what will enable us to not be canceled in culture is to go face-to-face, person-to-person, heart-to-heart, and share our personal story with people that we know, people that we meet, people that we encounter, and share with them what Jesus has done for us. If we allow Facebook to determine how we post, what we post, and what we share about Jesus, and we get so entrenched in fighting with platforms, then we've lost our voice and lost our message altogether. What we should do is we should focus on those that God puts in our life, puts in our path, and we should look for every opportunity to be a verbal witness for Jesus Christ. Because as sure as I am sitting here tonight, I'm telling you, It may not be in the next two years, it may not be in the next five years, and it may not be in the next 50 years. I don't know. But I have no doubt the way that things are going in the world, we will not have freedom on social media platforms to speak positively about the name of Jesus And so we need to learn the biblical discipline of sharing our faith with people face-to-face and not rely on social media to give us that platform. I saw an article by the uh, former Friends actress Jennifer Aniston. She's starring as a news anchor on a show called The Morning Show. Uh, I haven't seen the show but it's a drama series, and it focuses on the effects of exactly what I'm talking about, cancel culture. And that's really just, as the article says, it's a social media term, which means that someone or something has been ostracized for doing something that others see as controversial. Again, remember what I said about Jesus. If people think that Kyle Rittenhouse shooting two people and wounding another is controversial, think about the Son of God leaving the glory of heaven, taking on flesh, and dying on a cross for the sins of the world. That is increasingly becoming less and less popular. You know, you think about the shift just in your lifetime at Christmas time. I mean, they don't show Charlie Brown's Christmas on television on the three or four major networks for free every Christmas anymore. Why? Because it promotes Jesus. I mean, Linus comes to the front of the stage at the pinnacle moment in the show and recites the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. And he turns to Charlie Brown and he says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Think about that and relate that to cancel culture. Christmas is not getting canceled. Jesus at Christmas is getting canceled. That's not a new message.
So when you begin to think about the slippery slope of cancel culture slipping and sliding into the church to edge the message of Jesus out of the mainstream and out of the conscience of other people, then yeah, you can imagine that one day it's going to be shut down. Why? Because they can. But the Friends actress, getting back to Jennifer Aniston's article here, she said, and I quote, obviously that's a new thing that's happening, talking about cancel culture. She says, quote, it's the new sport. It feels reckless, which is why I think we really wanted to explore it in the show. What happens when someone gets canceled? Where do they go? Is that it? I mean, you think about that. You could do a search on the internet for television shows, actors, actresses, musicians, public figures that have gotten quote-unquote canceled as a result of saying or doing or being what others deem to be controversial. And I'm just simply telling you, I don't think it's going to be too long before anything and everything related to Jesus is deemed far too controversial and far too divisive for social media. But, you know, the good thing is the Bible describes in Philippians 4, you know, Paul says if there's anything good, if there's anything right, if there's anything lovely, anything praiseworthy, and then he goes on, he says, think on these things. He says, for against such things there is no law. And it may not be against the law to be a lovely, kind, gracious person, but it may be against Facebook law to talk about Jesus one day. It, it, you may not get arrested and thrown in jail for forgiving someone and for telling other people that you forgive some, someone for doing something against you, but it may be a Facebook crime to put on Facebook one day or to tweet one day that Jesus died for your sins and because of your faith and trust in Christ that you have an eternal home in heaven and you have a personal relationship with God right here, right now. One day that might be a crime on Facebook or on Twitter or on whatever social media exists in the future. But I would not put it too far out of the reach of any of the cancel culture um, bigwigs to turn to Christianity. You know, you think about, and, and I, I really learned this lesson a couple of years ago, thinking about freedom of religion. And, and Al Mohler, who is the president of Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, said in one of his briefings just the other day, it is religious liberty for all or it is religious liberty for none. And if you think about that, if we say free speech, it's free speech for all, for all circumstances and for all topics or it's not free speech for anybody it is either the freedom of religion for christians to worship as well as muslims and mormons or it is not freedom of religion for any of us to practice our religion and so with that in mind because christians have the freedom of religion and can practice what we believe and we can gather together and worship, we need to do that. I remember when COVID hit and we were beginning here at Columbia Baptist, we were beginning to find creative ways to get our service on as many different media platforms as possible. Thankfully, we have had a, a contract with radio stations one or another or both for a number of years as a church. I'm very, very thankful for that. But there was also, there were a lot of churches that were doing Facebook Live because that was a function of Facebook that gave any person that had an account the opportunity to do a live video. 
Well, a lot of churches said, but look, we can't meet in person, so we'll just get a camera, we'll get somebody's iPhone, uh, we'll use our own fancy equipment if we have it, and we will stream to Facebook, and we'll put our worship service on Facebook. And, and we as a church are still doing that. And I made the commitment as pastor that, that once we started that, that we were going to continue with that because, you know, there are just times that people are sick on the weekend or they're out of town or they, you know, have to travel for work or, you know, they've got a sick kid at home and they can't physically be here. And we wanted to be able to be a blessing by not only being on the radio, but we also wanted to give people the experience of actually seeing and, and hearing our worship service. It was another opportunity, another outlet for us to share the message of Christ. Well, after we were doing that for several months, we were, had also been streaming live at the exact same time to YouTube. And we were streaming live to Facebook, streaming live to YouTube. We had a Vimeo account. We were live on Vimeo. We had it streaming on our church website through Vimeo. So, I mean, we were doing everything we could as a church to get the message of Christ out in as many places and ways as possible until YouTube changed their policy. And they said that until you have, I believe the number was 500, until you have 500 likes and or 500 subscribers to your YouTube channel that you could not do a YouTube live anymore. Now you think for just a second about small town, small church in the middle of nowhere where somebody has a Google account because they had to have one for a, a, a term paper in high school and they've still got a Google account. And for whatever reason, they signed up for a YouTube account, never posted a video to it, and all of a sudden, COVID hits and nobody can go to church. And this person pulls out their iPhone and they said, you know what, I'm going to put granddad who's preaching on a YouTube account. We only have about 20 people that would watch it, but those 20 people, you know, we're, we're going to put it on YouTube. Maybe it'll reach 25, maybe it'll reach 105, who knows? Think of the hundreds, if not thousands, of churches that started on YouTube that were shut down because they didn't have over 500 subscribers. Now, I get it. The YouTube probably used the server and the amount of, of space on their servers that all of these videos on Sunday morning were taking up. But my goodness, you go through YouTube and there is a galaxy's worth of foolishness on YouTube that people have uploaded. And what it essentially did is it cut down all uh, many of the churches that had fewer than 500 subscribers. And now all of a sudden they can't find themselves anywhere on YouTube. So I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, I am just simply telling you that there may come a day when cancel culture finds its way to the church. The last thing that I wanted to mention to you was a fascinating article that I saw. And it's fascinating to me because I get it. The article had to deal with the most controversial covers to magazines ever. I think ever. And you almost have to think about the time that these articles came out. And the shock factor and, and the shock appeal that these covers had. I'm not going to go through all of these, but I am going to mention some of the highlights of the top, uh, the top 12. Number 12, April 14th, 1997, picture of Ellen DeGeneres. The title of the Time magazine says, yep, I'm gay. In 1997, she was 
a television star. She had her own show. She was stand-up comedian. That was big news. That was a shock. In number 10 on the list was a, uh, we'll skip number 10. Number nine on the list, January 1981, Rolling Stone magazine, John Lennon and Yoko Ono. John Lennon, from all appearances, seems to be naked, although he is uh, covertly covered with himself, his leg, uh, laying and giving a kiss to Yoko Ono. 1981, just you know, prior to his uh, getting killed, people were outraged because Yoko Ono apparently broke up the Beatles. This was big, big news. March 1999, Rolling Stone magazine, Teen Dream, Britney Spears, scantily clad, unfortunately, but the push of female sexuality back into pop music that you saw with Madonna and other musicians in the 80s, and then it was Britney Spears' turn. June 2015, if you can believe that, Vanity Fair, almost six and a half uh, years ago, Call Me Caitlin, Bruce Jenner, wanted to be known as Caitlyn Jenner and looks to be on the cover of Vanity Fair as a female and not the male that he was born to be. Skip to number four, an American tragedy on the cover of Time magazine, June 27th, 1994. It was the mugshot of O.J. Simpson after he was arrested for the death of his wife, Nicole, and Ronald Goldman. February 2006, The Passion of Kanye West. It shows Kanye West with a crown of thorns on his head. And my goodness, what a cover. And number one, by the way, is July 2013 called The Bomber. Rolling Stone had a picture of the backpack bomber that bombed many watching the Boston Marathon back in 2013. And they put a stylish type picture of him on the cover. And that was a controversial cover of Rolling Stone. I wonder, as a Christian, and I wonder as a pastor... If cancel culture has not already gotten a hold of the church and the gospel, and if we are somehow more offended by someone who does a tragic thing than we are by someone who tragically died doing a good thing, that we are not shocked by our own sinfulness and our own separation from God, and drawn to the person of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we need the Son of God to cover our sin and pay for our sin because we are unable to, that somehow we're more shocked by someone who does something sinful than we are even with our own sinfulness, knowing that we need a Savior. You know, I think about culture a lot. And I think about society a lot. And my fear for every single person on this planet is either that we will never come to an awareness of our own sin or we will become so shocked by everyone else's sin that we think other people need a Savior, but we do not. And of course, if you never come under conviction of your own sin, you'll never see the need to have a Savior. And if you're always impressed with other people's sin, then you'll never see your own need for a Savior either. But I'm thankful that the Lord Jesus died for me, and I'm thankful that he paid for my sin, and I'm thankful to be able to have this opportunity to share that reality with you. 
I'm here every Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, and I appreciate the time that 101.9 WAIN has given me, also on 1270 AM. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving with friends and family. Have a great rest of the week, Christ. Thank you for joining me tonight.